Thank you, group. My name's Hal, and I'm an alcoholic. And I'm glad of it, because if I were not an alcoholic, I'd have to miss this meeting tonight. And I'd have to be out there trying to figure out how to drink normally. And uh, I'm glad I'm in a uh, place called Alcoholics Anonymous that knows how to handle my problem so it doesn't give me trouble. Lots of agencies these days are trying in lots of ways to help lots of drunks drink normally. And uh, what they don't realize is that my idea of normal drinking is not like theirs. It wasn't like my wife's. She always said, take two and quit. I haven't started with two. She's a sipper. I'm a belter. And I was in California a couple of weeks ago, and I ran into a new one. This is a new scheme to fix drunks. Uh, they call it the pre-alcoholic program. They get you while you're a pre-alcoholic and fix you so you can drink normally. How about that one? <laughs> and so I checked the record to find out what a pre-alcoholic is. <laughs> I'd never heard of it. Well, most of them have lost their driver's licenses. Uh, most of them are unemployable. Most of them have, have lost their families, burned down houses. And uh, But they're not alcoholics. They're pre-alcoholics. They sound to me like the real thing. But I mean, I, I wouldn't judge them. I would, uh, if they're pre, I'll take their word for it, but count me out. I'm a full-fledged alcoholic. And I am uh, permitted to drive my car. I don't burn down houses, and I don't get fired because I'm an alcoholic. So uh, it's a weird thing, this business, that alcoholism does to the human head. You're not that bad. You know, just drink like so-and-so. And when I came to AA after 29 years of being not that bad, and I assured the group, that I wasn't like they were. They slept on park benches under newspapers and all that kind of stuff. And I said, I haven't done all that. I haven't ever been fired. I've never wrecked a car. I've never been to any of the groves or Springfield or any of the funny farms. Never been in a, in a long sleeve vest. Never been strapped down in DTs. Look at the fun I miss. And they said, you know what? If you join us, if you do what we do, you can have what we have, and you don't have to get in any further trouble. So I came to AA as someone who just drinks too much, and while I was in that state of drinking too much, I had trouble. I became an alcoholic after about 90 days in AA, and now I have no trouble. And who's crazy? People say, you're not one of those. I say, I'll guarantee you I am. Well, you've been sober quite a while. You could take a drink if you wanted to. And I said, I certainly could. But I'll get dead from it. Because I have a progressive disease. And my disease is a lot worse than when I came to AA. I remember how bad it was before I came here. And I remember how much fun I was having. I had a fun gauge. The size of blisters between my first two fingers was the measurement of my fun. If the cigarette burned straight through 
and I felt no pain. I must have had a good time last night. And I had blisters the size of pigeon's eggs between my fingers where the cigarette would go straight through and I didn't feel a thing. I knew I'd had a ball by the size of the blisters. That's a fun gauge. And uh, that's about all the fun I can remember the last few years that I drank. Get up in the morning, chin on the toilet bowl. You know, worship at the urn. That hole, did you ever try to crawl up that high? To get up high enough to throw up into the toilet bowl, it's cold and clammy on a cold, I'll guarantee it. There's nothing fun about it. The floor is cold. The bowl is cold. You're cold. But I mean you've got to do something with whatever is going on inside, right? That's fun. That's the first thing on Sunday morning. Light a cigarette. Top of my head blows off. And when I catch that and paste it back on, and I can't drink till afternoon or evening because I'd read where only alcoholics drink in the morning. I said, I'll never drink in the morning. I'm no alky. I shook all day and took my morning drink in the afternoon. That's fun. Alky fun. And then really belt into it and come home or call home eight or nine at night and say, Mama, I'll be late for supper. You'll be late. What time do you think it is? Now, she can't talk to me in that tone of voice. I'll show her. I'll get drunk at her. So bang up the phone. Now I've got an excuse to stick in the gin mill. She can't talk to me like that. Fun. That was my alcoholic fun. And then blackout. And next morning, look down to see if the car is there. Are there dents in it? Are there any blood spots on it? Did I hit anything? Did I kill somebody? I didn't know. Yeah, that was the wind-up fun that I was having after 29 years of boozing when I went to my first AA meeting. And I heard some pretty weird things. Like, you don't ever have to drink as long as you live if you'll do what we do. And I said, these people are out of their minds. They don't know that I have to drink every night of my life. I have to drink to unwind, to relax, and all this stuff. And, and uh, when the butterflies change into eagles and start to claw around on my inside, I know about six double pikes filled with beer chasers will quiet them down. And uh, so, But they didn't know that I had to drink. And the group told me this. When you start out in our program, you take any length of time that suits you, any length of sobriety. And if you can't go for a day, go for an hour. Well, an hour is too long when five o'clock comes and the shake set in. I said, I can't make an hour. Can you make five minutes? Yep. The bartender takes five minutes to make the rounds of the other drunks. So I had to wait five minutes many a time in the gin mill. And I used to drink down here in Pennington Avenue and uh, the Crystal Cafe at the foot of Broadway and Sam's Bar on Light Street and a few of these high-class joints where Pikesville is half the price that it was at the Belvedere. And anyhow, if you've ordered Pikesville at the Belvedere, they looked at you funny. It was uh, heavy stuff. I mean, the uh, panty waist up there didn't drink the way I drank, most of them. And so uh, the... Troops told me, you don't have to drink if you'll postpone the drink a day at a time and holler for help. 
And I'll never forget what my sponsor told me. He said, from now on, any time you get into trouble with booze, I'll get you out of it. If you wreck your car, I'll buy you a new one. If you burn your house down when you're drunk, I'll buy you a new one. I said, man, this AA is something else. He said, provided. One thing. Get my permission to take the first drink. Oh, I tried to work him over many a time. I needed that drink. But he always talked me out of it. He said, let's talk about it first. Now, if you take the first drink and you wreck a car, buddy, you're on your own. You get your own self a new car. If you burn the house down, that's your problem. If you don't get my permission to take the first drink. And he meant it. And I never was able to get his permission to take the first drink, so I haven't taken it. A day at a time, and that was 27 years ago last night, since I had my last drink. By the grace of God and the help of all you people. Now, anything that I say in AA is strictly not my opinion. I stole it from a bunch of drunks. And I take everybody's inventory in the program, so don't tell me not to take your inventory because I'm doing it anyhow. That's how I learn what works and what doesn't work. And I'm never too impressed with anybody who drinks in AA. I'm not impressed. I, I can learn from them, but I'm not impressed with their program. I'm impressed with people who come in and never take a drink. And they told me that. These are the things my sponsor told me. And they pointed to old Henry M. in the Towson group. And he was sober ten years when I came in. He was the prize of Baltimore. He was it. Ten years. That's, that's the biggest we had. I think there were one or two that were twelve years sober, but, but Henry M. Was, was really it. And they pointed him out. And I looked him over, and I said, that old goat ought to stop drinking. One more drunk would kill him. There wasn't enough left for a decent drunk in him. <laughs> I wasn't impressed. But old gravel voice Ray R., he was sober for a year, and I could listen to him because he was you know, somewhere in ten years out of sight. So I picked on the guys who were a few weeks and a few months sober, and I watched what they did until they got drunk, and then I didn't watch what they did anymore. I'm going to watch you if you're staying sober. I can learn. I can learn from you if you get drunk, too. I'll learn what not to do. Because I'll tell you, after a few months in AA, four of us decided we were smarter than the rest of these clowns, and we could drink and not have too much trouble. Four of us. We would put together a program, and we would space each other, and we would police each other. And if anyone got out of line, we'd take their car keys away and take their wallet. You know, I mean, we had this thing laid out. And the time came for us to run this road test. Four, three good guys, we'd been fishing a couple of weeks before, and we planned this thing on a fishing trip. We're going to drink. We won't have too much trouble. We'll go back to the Towson group and say, fellas, we'll sell you the plan. I mean, or if you're uh, good guys, we'll even give it to you. We'll let you in on how to drink and not have too much trouble. We were serious about this thing because I didn't like sobriety. It didn't fit me. I, I didn't like being too sick, but I was willing to settle for some trouble. 
You know, that's an awful sick head that thinks that way. That's a proof that this is a mental disease as well as physical and spiritual. Mentally, <clears throat> I was just as drunk as a hoot owl after a few months in AA. I hadn't taken a drink, but my head hadn't dried out. They told me it takes nine months to a year, and so my wet head was thinking wet, and it was going to get wet. And that Friday night, <clears throat> I forgot about our booze date, and I went to the Towson meeting. I completely forgot our date to drink. And the next morning, Jack and Shep and Eddie, the other three guys, were dead. They drank. They got dead that night. And I was supposed to be number four. How close can you come? I tell you, I never planned to drunk after that. <clears throat> never, because that's scary. I didn't realize that what the big book says was true about me. That suddenly the time comes when I had no defense against the first drink. It's not a matter of planning a drunk. I, we were planning a, dr a drunk, but not too big a one. And I've had occasions where suddenly the compulsion hit me, and I had no defense against the first drink except a higher power. And the first time that happened was in front of a gin mill. I'd been on a 12-step job one morning, and I was about a year sober, and I couldn't find anyone to go with me, so I went to see this guy. His, I had known him. He was on a, on a little road trip, and his bedroom was full of empty wine bottles and cockroaches and flies and spiders and all the stuff that sets in in hot weather when you're on wine, and it was a mess, and uh, his wife was trying to pack up the kids and go to her mother's, and he was having DTs chasing bugs as big as dinner plates. says, can't you see him? Look at that thing. I couldn't see him. He said, what's wrong with you? Well, I, I couldn't explain what was wrong with me. I mean, I just didn't have his insight at that moment. And then he got the gimmies. Give me a pill. Give me peraldehyde. You don't hear much about peraldehyde anymore. That was a favorite mixture a few years back. It's half ether and half alcohol. <coughs> And they belted it into you in drying out joints and you smell just like a stiff in a morgue. Because peraldehyde is what they embalm you with. And every drunk who got on that smelled just like a morgue. Yeah, I don't, I don't guess they use that anymore because it was so inflammable. If you lit a cigarette, you'd go up like a torch. We had more burned up drunks than you ever saw from peraldehyde. So I think they banned it or... <laughs> They got Librium and Valium. That stiffens you out without uh, catching on fire or something. But uh, but anyhow, I didn't know what to do, so I went out and got a pint. And I began to spoon feed him. And he grabbed the bottle and upended it and slopped all this raw whiskey all over me. And now I had the thirst. I mean, it hit me, it hit him. And I said to his wife, i got to get out of here. I'm splitting. I'm leaving. She said, what am I going to do with him? And I said, you trapped him. He's your very own. You can shoot him, chop him up, bury him, throw him away. I don't care what you do. I'm leaving. I had to get out of there. And I headed down to Bel Air Road and stood in front of the gin mill, shaking like a leaf. I was sober about a year. That is drinkless. I wasn't sober. I was drinkless. And there was a drugstore 
in a gin mill about two doors apart, and the swinging doors were open on the gin mill, and one of the drunks from the night before was sweeping out the joint, and I got a whiff of the stale cigar butts and stale beer, and it smelled delicious. And when that slop smells good, you're headed for trouble. And I stood there and shook, and I didn't want to get drunk, but the compulsion was all over me. I mean, like a big black blanket, it hit me. you got to have a drink. And I, I tried to scrape enough of the program together to prevent it. And I thought of step one. We admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. I had never seen how that step read before. Our total life is unmanageable. I'm a lousy drinker and a lousy manager without booze. That's what step one says. I can't even control my life without drinking. And that was the proof of it because I wasn't drinking. But I was standing in front of a gin mill getting ready to, and that's got to be sick. And then I thought of step two. <clears throat> Came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. And I thought, man, I'm crazy to think about a drink, but I'm going to have one anyhow. You ever think that way? You may. I tell you, it was scary. It was like I had two heads. One head said, you're going to blow it. The other head said, you'll be all right. You can handle it. The other said, head said, now you know what happened last time. Like I was at a ping pong game watching the ball go back and forth and the two heads are talking. One of them said, you're going to get dead. The other one said, go ahead. You can handle it. This time will be different. I'll tell you, this is a crazy disease. And step two is not fooling. And it was telling crazy things to my head. And then I thought of step three. Made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood Him. And you know, I had misread that step a dozen, dozens of times. I had thought it said, I have to turn me over to some kind of an unknown God. It doesn't say anything about turning me over to anybody. Step three doesn't. Made a decision. And that is simple. That's no commitment. That's a decision. That's voting in favor of a new manager. That's what that step said to me that morning. And I thought, well, if anybody needs a new manager, I'm it. Because I'm about to go in and get drunk and die. I thoroughly expected because Jack and Shep and Eddie were all dead, my buddies. And I was going to be number four. And then I thought, well, I don't know anything about this God. <clears throat> when I was a Buddhist, God was a distant rectangular blob. And when I was in yoga, he was a distant circular blob. I tried all those oriental kicks. And every one of them was too far away to help me, so I got religiously drunk in all those religions. And I'm not taking anything away from anyone's religion. I'm telling you, it didn't work for me. Because I need a close-up God when I'm in trouble. So I began to talk to this God that I didn't understand. And I said, uh, I'm led to believe by the old-timers in this program who wrote the big book that you're available for trouble times like this <clears throat> and that you can remove compulsion. I thought I was like talking to myself. That's what it felt like. But you know, when you're on the brink of total disaster, you don't really uh, 
bother too much with technicalities. I had talked to myself many a time when I was boiled. I used to threaten me in my mirror. I used to tell me, if you do that one more time like you did last night, I'm going to fix you. I would talk to me. So what's what's new about that? I suddenly realized, go ahead. Go on through with this thing and it might work. So I said to this God that I didn't understand. I said, I don't know if you're here or not. I just know one thing. I need help. And if you can't handle this compulsion, that makes two of us because I can't either. That's exactly what I told him. I can't either if you can't and I'm sunk. But if you're here and you can handle this thing, would you please take over? And like that, that compulsion was gone and it hasn't come back in 26 years. I had thirst. I had ideas. I had uh, dreams. I had booze dreams. I'd wake up with a hangover. I tell you, when you drink as long as I did, as much as I did, the little man down inside is thirsty for a long... I guess he'll always be thirsty. And I'd wake up with shakes and hangovers. My sponsor said, think nothing of it, buddy. We all do it. I had everything but the smell. I didn't stink. That's the only way I could tell that I hadn't been drunk the night before. I didn't stink. Because I always stunk. I, I smelled terrible when I... It would come out before because you can't drink a fifth or a fifth and a half, without smelling bad. And uh, I guess that goes for vodka. They didn't have that when I was drinking, but I guess any of it smells pretty rank, like uh, gamey the next morning. But I didn't smell gamey. I smelled pretty good, I mean, comparatively. So I knew I hadn't been drunk. And all these things from the old pattern of boozing are down inside me <coughs> ready to pop into action if I get too far away from this program. And so God, that I didn't understand, took away the compulsion that I did understand, and it's never come back. Step number three worked in front of a gin mill. That's pretty close for safety, but I mean, that's how it was with me. It's better to work it farther away from a gin mill because it's pretty risky when you're standing there ready to go in for a jug. That's kind of risky. But uh, this is how it worked for me that morning. And uh, I, I went along like this for about three years. And I got real active. I went to meetings seven nights a week, still do, <clears throat> whenever I can make it, because I drank seven nights a week. And uh, if you want to overcome <clears throat> one type of habit, you replace it with another type of habit. That's the way they explained it to me. You never replay, you never remove a habit, it's always down inside. My booze habit is right there, ready to go into action, but I've replaced it <clears throat> by uh, repeating over and over a sober pattern for close to 10,000 days in a row, and that has an effect on impressing the new habit on you. If you do a thing that often, I haven't counted it up, but it's got to be close to 10,000 days since I took a drink. And that has to be eight or 9,000 AA meetings ago. That's bound to have an effect on your thinking and on your total lifestyle, is go to meetings. Keep coming back. Keep going. If you didn't hear anything you like, come back next time. Maybe you will. That's what they told me. And I didn't hear too much that I liked at first. I heard a lot of God talk, 
I thought those steps were the craziest things that anybody ever cooked up. I thought, Sunday school. No, they said not so. It might work for Sunday school kids if they had a problem. But it's a life-saving program that progressively changes your life from bad management to good management. Well, I sure needed that, but they talked an awful lot about God. I told them that. I complained about it to my sponsor. Well, he was a little arrogant, big-mouthed, World War I veteran, old Dick Stedman. Uh, he's left this type of meeting. He said, I'm going up yonder. I'll be putting out ashtrays. Cancer got him a few years ago. He said, I'll be putting out ashtrays in the big meeting up yonder. I'll see you later, buddy. When he was dying, he knew uh, that uh, it was a transition. He had a peek into the future. <clears throat> I saw him at the VA hospital when he was dying. And he had a good assurance about the future, better than I had. But he said one thing that night. He said, does, God, does the idea of God make you nervous? I said, well, it does. Yeah, it does quite a bit. Well, he said, if you go and drink booze, that'll make you more nervous, won't it? If God talk makes you nervous, don't ever get into a poker game, a golf game, or a crap game, because it's God this and Jesus sat the whole time, buddy. <laughs> and I guess that straightened me up. Yeah. He said, who's kidding who? If you don't like our program, buddy, he said, there's the door. It swings both ways. Don't slam it when you go out, because you might want to come. That's straight talk, isn't it? That's what I needed. He said, we like this program because it saved our lives. And if you don't like it, you go try anything you want. Get a bottle of booze, and when you get real nervous, come on back. Well, I didn't get the bottle of booze because I wasn't all that nervous anyhow. <laughs> I just wanted to be a dictator. See, a fresh drunk is by nature a dictator. I wanted to call the shot. I wanted to reword the program to suit me. He said, buddy, we ain't going to do it. It works too good this way. You know what alcoholism is called in the big book? Self will run riot. And any juice head that drank for a long time uh, is bound to come in and dislike something about the program unless you reel down on the bottom, which I wasn't. I felt I was an up-and-outer. And I told him, I still have my home and my job and my family and all that. And he said, well, that's real nice. You can keep them. But he said, you know the difference between an up-and-outer and a down-and-outer? The height of a curbstone. The down-and-outer has his head in the gutter. The up-and-outer has it on the sidewalk. Now, that's not much difference in altitude, about six-inch curbstone. These things were practical, first-hand experience kind of wisdom that they laid on me. And they said, if you come to meetings with an open mind, and the uh, the HOW of AA, how it works, HOW, H stands for honesty with yourself, O for open-mindedness, and W for willingness to try the program without lousing it up with your own ideas, HOW. Come with an open mind. And if it works for others, it'll work for you because we have the experience of 60,000 members 
That's how many members there were in AA when I came in. 60,000 worldwide. And 10 groups in Baltimore. I guess you got 10 in this neighborhood now. That's all there was, 10 groups. And we come down to Brooklyn here every uh, Saturday night and, and old Webb Bracken, the, uh, the uh, sponsor of this group, he was a big help to me when I came in. And uh, he'd say, keep coming back. Keep coming back, because I was full of complaints, nitpicker, fault finder, everything else. He never argued, keep coming back. And I did. And that's about all I did. Keep coming back and use as much as you can use of the program. Well, you know, you don't need a whole lot of the steps when things are going well and there's no big problems around. But eventually, everybody runs into tragedy. You know, big time trouble that you can't handle. And then if you're this way, you know, on the fence, half on one side and half on the other, you know, you're going over and you can't tell which side you might go over. Now, I was working about uh, five out of 12 steps. And if you had a ladder that had supposed to have 12 rungs in it and you left out seven, you're bound to go down through the holes if you try to climb up it. I mean, five rungs won't get you to the top safely unless you're a squirrel. <laughs> and a drunken squirrel might have trouble <laughs> at that. But anyhow, they tried to tell me these things, but I, I couldn't hear it. See, I was intergroup everything. I was intergroup secretary. I was on the steering committee. I was on the inner... They had an inner sanctum. We had regulations like you wouldn't believe in intergroup when I came in. We had bylaws. You couldn't speak at a meeting on your feet unless you were sober for a year. And you couldn't speak sitting at a table unless you were sober six months. I mean, we had bylaws like you never heard of. And then they all got drunk. We tore up the bylaws and went back to AA. Most of them got dead from that thing. And some of the best guys and gals you ever saw died from that castle because the rest of the drunks wouldn't do it that way, their way. I'll get drunk at them, I'll fix them. And 90% of them got dead. And it was a mess. It's a wonder any of us stayed sober back there. I'm telling you, AA was only 16 years old when I came in. And we, they were cutting their eye teeth and everybody had a different idea. And uh, when you get a bunch of drunks with no traditions, nobody pay it. We didn't have traditions. The 12 and 12 book hadn't come out. If we had them, I never heard of them. I thought the steps were the back stairs going upstairs in our meeting building. We never talked about the steps. We talked about drunkologues and how you could commit sin better sober than drunk. <laughs> That's right. They told me, buddy, if you like to commit adultery, you can do it better sober than drunk. Well, I knew that. <laughs> and that wasn't anything new. They had the morals of a bunch of snakes. No recovery. Just Now, if you like that kind of thing, you can have it, but you won't stay sober because the big book says you lay it on top of the table and you change your lifestyle totally. And so it, it eventually weeded itself out <coughs> and uh, we began to study the steps and uh, then the 12 and 12 book came out. I think... Uh, 
in my third year or so, we got into the traditions, and that twelfth tradition saved me many a time. It says anonymity is the uh, spiritual foundation of all of our traditions, ever reminding us to place principles before personalities. Personalities are sick. Principles are sound. And I'll tell you, that straightened my thinking out many a time when I get upset at a bunch of drunks who didn't agree with me. And then I'd, that uh, principle would come to my mind, what are you here for? Agreement? Are you here to win a popularity contest? Or are you here for survival? And it saved my life many a time. I'm not here to prove anything. I'm here for survival because I've got a disease that's getting worse down inside while I'm getting better on the outside. And that's an apy ailment, isn't it? It's physical, mental, and spiritual. And if I'm watching only one part of it and trying to be a pre-alcoholic and uh, watching the uh, mental part, for instance, and taking all kinds of mental therapy, uh, that first drink will bang me physically if I'm not in good spiritual condition. And I can be super spiritual and forget that I'm allergic to the chemical called alcohol and I'll get a drink and get sick physically and after the first drink goes down, the mental compulsion comes in. The first drink makes a new man out of me. The new man has to have a drink and we both get drunk. That's how it works. But you see, with a three-way treatment of AA, I don't have to worry if I go to meetings as often as I drank. They nailed that into my thick head. They hammered it home. Go to meetings, and that saved my life because the tragedy hit the third year. And the big trouble was more than I could handle, and I set out to handle it on my own and uh, ended up with a loaded gun in my pocket out to kill the man who had run off with my wife on my 25th wedding anniversary. That'll get your attention. <laughs> and if you have a mean streak in you, it'll come to the surface. I'll guarantee you. And this was a drunk that I had fished out of the gutter, and I took him home. I was going to be his benefactor. They only had five steps. I didn't have the program. I had five pieces of it. And I was going to, you know, do this and that, and he was going to be my boy, and he'd give me the credit, and I'd be aces, you know. I'd look around the room and say, there's my pigeon, there's one of my boys, there he, there's one of them. I got him, you know, so who got who sober? I was a mess after three years. No recovery, just wet-headed sobriety. Still wet-headed, thinking back here, someday I can drink. Now that's got to be sick. And so when I leveled the gun at the boy that night, I couldn't pull the trigger. I couldn't make anything work. But I remembered a guy who had something beyond sobriety. He was into recovery, and he talked about a personal God, and I, I couldn't add it up. Well, I went to his house that night <clears throat> because I was pretty desperate. I knew one thing, if something didn't happen that had to do with a personal God, I was going out and blow three heads off. 
and mine was probably going to be one of them. Because after you're sober for three years, and they do this to you, that's pretty heavy stuff. Mama's gone with another drunk. She said, get lost, bum. I've had enough of you. You know, 25 years, that'll really build you a pity party. I'll guarantee you don't need to try it. I can guarantee that it will. It'll annoy you no end. And it did. And I was annoyed. I thought of nothing but murder and destruction and hatred and bitterness for weeks. I sat in meetings in a red haze of hatred. You talk about resentment. I mean, that wasn't even in the ballpark. I'll kill him from the back end. I'll shoot him in the back of the head. And I'll enjoy watching that yellow scum squirt out the hole in the back and the front. Because it'll go through. I had a magnum. It'll go right on through. It won't stop. That bullet won't. Isn't that sick thinking? After three years in this program with about a thousand meetings, I hadn't recovered one bit. You see, you can be in here with white-knuckle sobriety for a long time and never get any farther away from the first drink than one day. Well, I'm well beyond the first drink today. I've got a lot of steps in between, but I didn't have them. I had a ladder full of holes. But I went to Ed Mullins' house that night. Cancer got him, too. Cancer got both my sponsors. And uh, they both left this world sober. And old Ed talked about a personal God like he had him in his vest pocket, real close. And I had to have something that night, so when I went to Ed's house, he took a look at me. I was sitting on his front step when he came home from the second shift at Bethlehem Steel. And he took one look at me and he said, it looks like you're ready to join AA. And I could have dropped him on his head, except I knew he was right, because he was recovering, and I was sober, and we were in about the same length of time. And he said, I believe my higher power might uh, help you. And uh, I said, maybe. He said, my higher power has a first name, and his first name is Jesus. And I said, well, that's nice. How do I know he's any more real than Buddha or Confucius or Zoroaster or any of these other gods that I'd been fooling with or Mary Baker Eddy or uh, Zen? I mean, I was in all those things. My guru might be just as real as your god. I, t- I had a new guru about every other week and new mantras sometimes three times a week. And I chatter those things to myself and sound like I was drunk. I mean, I fooled with all the garbage that you ever heard of before I got down to the real God. And he said, uh, you've tried a lot of gods, haven't you? And I said, I sure have. He said, did you ever check the record to find out if any of them were alive? I found they were all dead. Man, when you're fooling with dead gods, that's a total loss if you're a lush and you need fast help. How are you going to get on the horn with a dead one? Got to wait till resurrection morning or something. And I don't know when that is. But I'll tell you one thing. I met a live one that night. And uh, in the 11th step of AA, it talks about <clears throat> drunks praying for one another. We sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood Him. Praying only for knowledge of His will for us and the power to carry it out. 
<coughs> so Ed prayed for me. <coughs> when the prayer was over, I said, well, that's nice. I appreciate it. I didn't feel anything. As far as I'm concerned, nothing happened. He said, there's one way <coughs> that you can experience a higher power if he's a live one. And that is to do business with him direct. <coughs> do simply ask him to make himself real. Well, all I had to lose was fear and murder and anxiety and depression and all that garbage. That's all I had to lose. And if it worked, I had something to gain like old Ed had because he was happy all the time. Every drunk in our group practically, their mouths looked like upside-down canoes. And their eyeballs had all the vitality of a ten-day-old herring in the hot sun. Death. Old dead one. But this guy, Ed, had life in him. He was turned on. He didn't have any fear. And he shouldn't have been that happy. I knew his wife. <laughs> it didn't add up. You talk about uh, rocket lips. <laughs> Both heads. Both heads. Ratchet jaw. Man. And he was happy, and I said, Ed, how do you stand her? I'd drop her on her head twice a day. He said, she can't help it. Oh, it had to be real. I got some of that that night, because uh, instead of uh, <clears throat> turning me off and saying, well, you're a dirty old sinner, you know what preachers tell drunks like me, a dirty old sinner. I'd heard that one a time or two. I had a grandmother preaching. And uh, he said, now look, if you're not satisfied with the introduction, I just introduced you to the head man of the universe. If you're not satisfied, take it up with him. Complain to him. Don't tell me your trouble. So I did. I said, okay, Jesus, if you're here and if you're God and if you can make yourself real to me right now, will you please do it? He did. He moved in and the crud moved out <clears throat> just that quick. The hate moved out and the murder and the fear, and I haven't been depressed since. That's 24 years ago. He took away the hatred for the guy who ran off with my wife and brought my wife and me back together better than ever. I mean, this is all aces, this program. And you know, I often wondered over the years what I would do if I saw that guy. You know, you often wonder. I saw him at an AA meeting not too long, several months ago, up at 8.57 one Sunday morning. And uh, he came up the stairs, <clears throat> totally unexpected, and I was eyeballing the guy that I wanted to rip to pieces. This is heavy. You know, I had often wondered, would I rip him up and down or sideways? <laughs> he would have a choice. I'd probably ask him, which way do you want it? I found myself putting my hand out and saying, I'm glad to see you. I said, what did I say that for? And then I realized I didn't do it. My higher power took out all that bitterness and the murder and the hatred. This guy's still sober 20-some years ago, 24 years, which proves that you can be a sober rat fink instead of a drunk. <laughs> I mean, the guy's just as slimy a rat fink as ever, but he's sober. And I could be too, you see if I didn't have a higher power who is a real live one that rooted out the mess inside of me, it was like it went down a big tube, all the crud and the guilt and the fear, accumulation of 48 years went right out of me. 
And inside came peace, like God had settled down inside me, zippered me up the front. He's been here ever since. Well, this is the, uh, they're, they're telling this kind of a story in churches all over the country tomorrow. I got resurrected from the dead. And Jesus lives inside me. That's the best impression I can give you, the best explanation of how it is with me. I haven't had any fear. I mean that deep, grabby fear. I haven't had that deep depression. I haven't had that awful guilt. You know, when you live the life of a lush all the years that I did, you got to have a lot of remorse down in there and a lot of regrets. My daughter never knew me sober till she was 16. She's pretty well whacked out emotionally as a result of my boozing years. And I used to have a lot of grief about that. It went because I know that my God has taken the record. He's forgiven. I didn't ask to be an alcoholic. I didn't ask to have this disease. And uh, I wouldn't have had a good enough sense to ask for it if I'd known it was around. It's the only disease that I know of that uh, looks and acts and heart attack experience without fear or anxiety. That's a pretty big bonus. Because I used to worry a lot about dying. I, I was pretty scary. What kind of a tube am I going down? Velvet lined or, uh, you know, moldy? I didn't know which. I knew the bad fume was coming out of that hole, whatever it was, because my grandmother used to preach it awful hot. She was a country preacher. And anything that was fun was sin. And if you smiled on Sunday, you got belted. I didn't find that kind of a God in AA. I found a loving God. And at the point of death, when I stopped breathing and my pulse quit and all these things stopped, and that'll really change your plans for the weekend when, you know, there's no pulse, blood pressure, or anything. I was moving from one dimension of life into another one. It was just as real as any of you are here. There was a river over here. It was so bright I couldn't look at it. I wasn't in a dark tunnel like some of those books tell you about. <clears throat> I was in the bright light of God's presence. And Jesus stood beside me right here, ready to take me across the river. Now, that was the best explanation of the death experience that I can give you. And then my pastor and daughter showed up and prayed me back into this life. And I'm not sure they did me any favors, but I'll tell you one thing, I know where I'm going. And if that is a hallucination, as some folks uh, seem to think, I have had a ball on the way to the grave. I have had a good time. I haven't had a hangover, haven't hung on the toilet bowl in a long time. I have not wanted a drink since Jesus moved in 24 years ago. haven't wanted a drink at all. And I'll tell you, kids, that's the name of the game for me. I hit here at age 45 pretty well burned out from running a life called my own. I'm 72 now and younger than I've ever been in my life because I'm hooked up to a new source of energy. I don't have to fight life. I don't have to battle it. I said to this guy, Eric, I'm glad to see you. And I thought, what did I say? It wasn't I saying it. It was the God inside of me that understood that He had only done to me what I have done 
to others, if not in person, at least in thought, because I have the nature of a drunk and a liar and an adulterer and a thief and a robber, and Jesus paid the price for the whole mess. Am I delighted with this program? I'm tickled pink. I'm glad I'm incurable, because if I were curable, I'd have to go and learn how to drink normally. You know what normal drinking is for me, don't you? A couple of fifths. So forget it, kids. I'm glad to be here tonight, and happy Easter. God bless you.